And you're listening to Louisiana Considered here on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Patrick Madden. On the show today, a photographer explores the connections between Antarctica and Louisiana with striking results. And kids are increasingly coping with anxiety about climate change. How do you talk to them about the issue? But first, it's Friday, and we talk politics with Stephanie Grace, editorial page director for the Times-Picayune, New Orleans advocate. And it has been a busy week and busy morning in politics, so we are going to just dive right in. Stephanie, happy Friday. Happy Friday. Senator Bill Cassidy, after earlier this week uh, suggesting that he was considering a run for governor, now says he will not do that. And obviously, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about who's in, who's out. We heard Senator Kennedy is also considering, and we've talked on this show about other candidates in the race, including the attorney general. Break down what this morning's announcement means. Okay. Um, Cassidy has actually been talking about this for a while now. There's been a really big effort to recruit him, and that's really by people who are not happy with the idea of a governor, Jeff Landry, the attorney general, and the idea being that he could be the sort of Republican who could attract Democratic moderate support. Um, The the challenge being getting into a runoff as a kind of more moderate Republican if there is a Democrat on the ballot, which there likely will be, uh, and kind of how much lingering anger there would be against him over his um, vote to impeach, convict Trump in impeachment, for example. But you know, he really tipped his hand earlier this week. He said, I, I've decided I'll let you know by the end of the week. Um, he, he announced it this morning. But yesterday he put out a statement talking about being becoming the top Republican on the uh, committee that oversees, among other things, health. And of course, he's a physician. He's done a lot of legislation involving health, a lot of bipartisan legislation, actually. Remember, he was kind of the, you know, the guy who tried to overturn Obamacare on behalf of Donald Trump and, you know, with this kind of fanciful idea that if you just sent everything back to the states, everything would be fine. Um, That did not work. John, that was, you know, John McCain with his thumbs down ended that. But aside from that, he's really worked on a lot of more incremental fixes to the healthcare system with a lot of Democrats. So this, even though the Republicans don't have the majority, he's well positioned to be really effective. And I think this is you know, this is his wheelhouse. This is what he wants right. to do in Washington. Stephanie, what does this mean for Senator Kennedy? Okay. Well, it leaves an opening for Senator Kennedy, of course. I mean, there is a giant opening for the, I wrote a column about this a while ago, you know, the anybody but Landry candidate. You know, who is the person that people who do not want Jeff Landry to be governor kind of coalesce around? Now, Jeff Landry, I think people here know this. He's, you know, he is a very ideological Republican, kind of in the Trump mold, social issues, all about social issues, very confrontational. Um, again, he's got a constituency and he's got a constituency at the state Republican Party, which has in, taken the bizarre, you know, move of endorsing him before there are any other announced candidates um, and has gotten a lot of blowback from that. Um, what's interesting about Kennedy is that he and Landry have, have in recent years really been allies. So this would suggest kind of a break between them. He is someone who has, you know, taken, taken a very conservative turn in the Senate, but he is a former Democrat. He's someone, a lot of people in government and politics know to be kind of other than the character he has been playing in Washington, which is this kind of, you know, ah, shucks 
conservative going on Fox News and saying, you know, weird things um, by getting a lot of press that, you know, there is this idea that he actually could be a good governor um, beneath that. Um, another person to keep your eye on is I would say Garrett Graves, the congressman from Baton Rouge. There are a lot of people in politics who think the two of them are kind of working it out between them themselves right now and one of them will run and be kind of the big name. But there are other names out there. There's, um, you know, Billy Nungesser, the lieutenant governor, who is, you know, kind of watching all this and thinking, maybe I'm going to step back and run for election and not for governor. But he's going to, he says he'll say in January, John Schroeder, the state treasurer, uh, Sharon Hewitt, a state senator from Slidell. There's a um, Richard Nelson, who's a state rep from Mandeville. Um, there's Hiller Moore, who's the Baton Rouge district attorney. He's a Democrat who's, you know, very respected. There's Sean Wilson, the state transportation secretary, another Democrat. There's, um, you know, everybody wants to be governor. And I, and I have to say, if you look back at Luke, even though we're talking about the big names now, if you look back at the history of Louisiana gubernatorial elections, you got a lot of dark horses who kind of come up at the end. You know, we Mike Foster, nobody was talking about way ahead. Buddy Romer, nobody was talking about way ahead. Even Bobby Jindal kind of had some support from, you know, some high level government people. But among the voters, he had, you know, the first time he ran and he got into that runoff with Kathleen Blanco, he had never been in public office before. He was considered a long shot. So, you know, I think it's it's worth remembering that there maybe is somebody out there who will at the right moment, capture the public's interest. Uh, Stephanie Grace, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, thank you. You're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Patrick Madden. Photographer Tyrone Turner has just published a powerful photo essay on NPR's website. The headline, See the Ties That Bind Antarctica and Louisiana Through One Photographer's Lens. And it's an essay that pairs photographs of both Antarctica and Louisiana, and immediately you are struck by the relationship between the images, how they mirror each other, how they connect to each other. And as the essay explores in text form, um, how climate change has impacted both regions and how these images capture what makes both of these places so special. And it's no surprise that Tyrone uh, is able to do that. He is from New Orleans. He worked at the paper here as a staff photographer. He's also worked for many other esteemed outlets like National Geographic and, of course, NPR. Tyrone is currently the visuals editor and storyteller at WAMU. That's the NPR station in Washington, D.C. I spoke with him earlier today. We're really happy to have you on Louisiana Considered, Tyrone. And in full disclosure, I worked with Tyrone for many years at that D.C. station. So, Tyrone, it's great to see you and hear from you. It's great. It's great to be here with you, Patrick. Yes, we did. We worked together a number of years and it was great. Um, Tyrone, tell us about this a photo essay. It, it's a result of, of several trips over the years, both to Antarctica and, of course, all the work that you've done here in Louisiana. Tell us, first of all, about where this idea came from for this photo essay, which, again, has beautiful pictures. You can go to um, our websites or go to NPR and see this photo essay. But Tyrone, tell us the idea for this photo essay. When did it come to you? So the idea came to me actually pretty late. As you said, I am from New Orleans. I came back and worked for the Times-Picayune and did a lot of work there. 
it wasn't until 2004 that I really got into covering the um, environment with um, disappearing wetlands um, for National Geographic, and then and then doing a, a series of stories about about uh, Louisiana and the Gulf Coast for National Geographic. Um, and I um, later on, I got the chance to um, participate in some of the trips that National Geographic has with Lindblad. They're the passenger ships, and they usually have a National Geographic photographer on board. And so I am not an expert in Antarctica at all. I, 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 was, I wanted to go because my work does not bring me down there to polar regions, and I, I really wanted to go. But I have to say, from the first time, from the first time we started encountering ice after crossing from Argentina over to the, um, over to the Antarctic Peninsula um, on the uh, through the Drake Passage, um, the first time we started to encounter ice, icebergs and sea ice, um, as, as extraordinary and different as that felt, I started feeling like, oh my goodness, I. I, it feels like I'm going through the wetlands. It feels like I'm I'm looking at these patches of of marshland, but I'm looking at patches of sea ice. And I kept on trying to relate it to Louisiana and try to understand. The first thing I was trying to do is understand, like you know, people people are talking about how much water is frozen and trapped on in, in Antarctica, and how you know you know looking at that in terms of of its. Uh, you know, potential melting and, and sea level rise. And I'm just like, how could I explain this to my family, how much ice and water is there? And I made, I, I did a calculation of how many gulfs of Mexico are on Antarctica. It's 11, according to my calculations, 11 gulfs of Mexico. That's, that's an amazing number. And so I kept on like thinking of it and trying to relate um, what I knew, which is Louisiana, to um, Antarctica. Um, then uh, years later, I, um, earlier this year, I got to go again. And so these same feelings of trying to relate um, what I know, Louisiana, to Antarctica kept on coming up. And I kept on thinking about these things. When I returned, I was talking with the visuals team, um, uh, the visuals editor, Nicole Werbeck, and one, one of the photo editors, Vanessa Castillo, about doing an essay using the Antarctica pictures. But as I started to put it together, I, I kept on, in the, in the essay I was writing, I kept on trying to relate it to Louisiana. And then I'm like, why don't I just put the pictures together? And I started to work with the pictures to put them together and find rhythms and find patterns and find shapes and things that would inform each other. It's not a comparison. It is basically like a feeling between the two pictures, uh, an echo, uh, a rhythm um, that informs one another. And this kind of connection, um, uh, and there is a connection between the two places in terms of sea level rise and, and basically through the water, right? There's a, a big connection, but trying to kind of bring that together visually is what I was trying to do. Um, so I started working on the diptychs and doing that. And, and um, you know, uh, it, it turned out pretty powerfully.
Yeah. I, I really liked it. And again, we're speaking with photographer Tyrone Turner. His new photo essay for NPR, you can go to our websites or also to NPR to see it. It's called See the Ties That Bind Antarctica and Louisiana Through One Photographer's Lens. And again, the juxtaposition of these uh, photographs that you're talking about are striking. Um, one in particular uh, shows in Louisiana it's an overhead picture of a coastal wetlands area, but it's clear with the, the the vanishing coastline and the rising water that that it's that the land is, is is physically disappearing. And then next to it, it's almost a mirror image, but of polar icebergs uh, that have broken off, and it's clear that the water is 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 rising around around them, and and they're just these striking mirror images. Yeah, I think that that's um, that's what I was really feeling. And then I started to do like the um, uh, kind of obvious, like the the marshlands and aerials of the marsh of the marsh grass with like the sea ice or the icebergs and trying to understand how those would um, uh, contrast. And then I started to do things that are a little less um, obvious, but that still had these patterns, you know, of like the 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 huge colony of penguins with the um cars from post katrina all the car flooded out cars that i, I have a picture of it from the air um you know that that's um I, I just started going down this path of, of putting these together and it took a couple of months to kind of pair these images and get it right um i worked a lot with with my wife susan sterner to to do this and to to She's also a photographer and to kind of um, make this work happen. And then once I kind of got it in shape, then I, you know, started working with um, the NPR visuals team and start to kind of put together a set and an order and that kind of stuff. Tyrone, obviously, Antarctica, coastal Louisiana, they, they've become known for being sort of the front lines of, of climate change. When it comes to photography and the power of just a, a visual image to convey a message and really to to start a conversation. Wh why do you think photographs and especially the way you've you've, you've presented and, and organized the, these these contrasting images, why do you think they're so powerful for people? I think that um, in making a diptych, it, it takes two separate photographs of so the pairing of them um make a different um the, the the two together is different than the, the each photograph separately they inform you in different ways and so um the two together start to speak to each other and you interpret that in a different way you see a shape or you see um something that is um you know a, a, an abstract idea of like okay if if these glaciers break apart, if this ice melts, this is going to directly affect uh, my family's homes in New Orleans. So it's it's very visceral to me. And so I kind of wanted to make it as visceral as possible, this connection between the two, you know. And, and so um, I think with the, the, the form of the of the diptych, it it it. It's a it's different than than having one photograph after another, which is which is also I do that. That's a um, a, a way that I present work. Um, this seemed to be a little different of a process, so I really tried to 
to kind of pair them together. There's there's one of a, a Mardi Gras Indian in this beautiful kind of landscape of these these mountains with the with the um, ice. And what I felt there was this majesty and power, as much as the majesty and power of this of Mardi Gras Indian culture and how strong that is and how important that is for New Orleans. I I I thought about that for the, the that other picture as well, and so those two kind of informed each other um, in in a way that um, that that was pretty special to me. Hmm. Tyrone Turner, he is the visuals editor for WAMU, the NPR station in D.C. Uh, Tyrone, thank you so much for joining us on Louisiana Considered. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Patrick Madden. It's called Climate Anxiety, and around the globe, children and young adults are navigating the emotions and issues surrounding climate change, its impacts, its uncertainty. On Thursday this week, NPR's Morning Edition spoke with climate change reporter Lauren Sommer and several young people about this issue. Some of the most strident voices at the Global Climate Summit in Egypt have been youth voices. Younger people are feeling the weight of inheriting a hotter world as the climate changes. We're going to talk about how kids are processing climate change and how to help them with climate anxiety. But first, we meet two students grappling with that. And we're going to start with 17-year-old Gabriel Nagel of Denver, Colorado. He first remembers learning about climate change in class as a seventh grader. I don't think it really clicked. Like, I saw the numbers increasing on a graph, but I didn't really see how much of a crisis it really was. It wasn't actually until um, Boulder's Sunshine Valley Canyon fire. The fire continues to burn west of Boulder, the Sunshine Canyon area. It's called the Sunshine Fire. I went to my dad upstairs and told him that, like, I think something's wrong. Like, and then we looked outside, and it was this, this giant blaze um, coming over the ridge right towards us. More than 1,000 homes were evacuated before the sun came up this morning. I mean, we just ended up evacuating with everyone else and just getting out of there for the day. Luckily, when we returned, everything was fine. And that was a moment when it kind of clicked for me that climate change isn't something of the future. It's something that we're dealing with right now, and no matter who you are, you're going to be impacted. After that fire, I kind of had an internal feeling that I needed to do something. So I started taking personal actions like bike and public transport and eat less meat. But then I started getting involved with our sustainability club at East High School. That's where I met Mariah. So my name is Mariah Rosenzweig. I am 18 years old. I had grown up just always being outside. I was always one of the few girls that would like be dirtier than all the boys. I think climate advocacy is more than just policy, but for me, it's really getting people to understand how integrated we are with the natural world and we're not separate from it. We tend to talk about this climate change stuff a lot and we'll spend time going to hikes and kind of just enjoying what we have around us while it's there. I went to a sustainability club meeting and One of the presidents was like, hey, we have this other group called DPS Students for Climate Action. And I was immediately like, oh, this is something I want to be a part of. So we started off and we realized DPS, which is essentially the largest school district in Colorado, they lacked any sort of climate action policy. And then we came up with this whole resolution where we outlined goals. One of the goals is 90 percent reduction in greenhouse gases from 2010 levels. 
you know, we would meet every single week. And a lot of that was presenting at public comments. And our first topic this evening is sustainability resolution presented by the... So a lot of times it would, we'd put so much heart and so much passion into it. Our first primary goal is for the district to strive to 100% clean energy by... And then the board is like, thank you. Next. Thank you so much. You can... And it was like, oh... How much longer are we going to keep doing this? Once again, we have with us some special guests, the sustainability student group. From start to finish, the process took almost two years. Director Anderson. Aye. Director Balderman. Aye. Director Esterman. Aye. The policy was passed Aye. unanimously, Aye. and it was really amazing. I know on a personal level, it sometimes feels like what I'm doing will never be enough. And part of that is true. Like one person isn't going to be able to change the fate of this planet of climate change. I realize that now the conversation isn't what can we do to prevent climate change? It's how are we going to live with it? As I'm still so young to hear that shift is frustrating because it's like we've known about this for so long. Climate change can be incredibly overwhelming at times, and that's totally okay. It's okay to feel anxious about your future because it is a real threat, but also don't let that stop you from trying to make a change and instead kind of use that as motivation to make the change that we need. That was Gabriel Nagel and Mariah Rosenzweig, both students at East High School in Denver, Colorado. And joining me now for more on how kids are processing climate change is Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk. So we just heard from these two students feeling like not enough is being done. How common are these feelings? Yeah, in general, you know, if you look at young adults, they're more likely to care about climate change. And that's true no matter what political party they belong to. And when it comes to younger school-age kids, you know, some are experiencing this climate anxiety that we heard. It's something that Dr. Kelsey Hudson, who is a clinical psychologist who specializes in climate change, she's seeing that in her patients. Many young people are experiencing grief and frustration and anxiety and elements of kind of betrayal by adults and other generations. And for some kids, this is kind of layering on top of the isolation and stress they may have experienced during the pandemic. Wow. I think it is kind of hard to hear when you're 41 that they feel betrayed by us, by our generation and other generations. And climate change is in the news a lot right now with the international negotiations going on in Egypt. So if you're a parent or caregiver or even a kid feeling these emotions, what's a good way to address it? Yeah. So Hudson says the first thing is to make some space to talk about it. But if you're a caregiver, ask what a kid knows about climate change and and how it makes them feel. Listen, you know, acknowledge their feelings and validate that it's a big, difficult thing to think about and avoid the urge to say that everything is going to be okay. Yeah, but I can see how a caregiver might want to just tell their kid, don't worry, everything is going to be okay. What's wrong with that? It's kind of a Band-Aid. It's not a solution. Um, And it's a global change that will affect billions of people. And young people know that. Yeah. So the next step after kind of just talking about it and validating feelings is to find something meaningful, Hudson says. We can think about what does it look like for young people or one young person to find a sense of meaning and purpose in this crisis, to maybe connect with like-minded others and build some agency through connecting with climate engagement or action. 
So engagement can happen on very different levels, she says. You know, it can be just, you know, planting a pollinator-friendly flower in your backyard with a kid or maybe volunteering at a local park. What's important here is finding community, finding those social connections so that young people don't feel so isolated with these feelings. And I'm sure getting outside, being in nature can be very helpful, too, in this case, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, Gabe and Mariah both talked to me about how they go on walks and hikes together when they're feeling overwhelmed. And that's two strategies that psychologists recommend, you know, talking about it with someone you care about and taking some time in nature and just, you know, enjoying that space. Lauren Summer of NPR's Climate Desk. Thanks so much, Lauren. Thanks. That segment from NPR's Morning Edition. And that's going to wrap up our show today. I'm Patrick Madden. This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. Thank you to all our guests, and everyone have a wonderful weekend. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at rouse's.com with additional support from the Sazerac House.